You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to Meister Eckhart, the German mystic, and I'm here with Jim to unpack his beautiful session from last week, and uh, welcome, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be with you again. So there's a lot to unpack from the last session, and... uh, what I heard in the session was you describing that if we, if we follow this path of detachment that Meister Eckhart outlines, in this last session you went through these states of consciousness that we might uh, find ourselves kind of being brought into. And uh, these are states of experiencing ourselves in God, experiencing reality as it really is. And... I thought perhaps what might be helpful today is to go through the states of consciousness and describe them a little. And just tell me, Jim, if these are the the four, if I'm headed in the right direction. So we start with dissimilarity. Yes. Next, we move into similarity. Right. Then identity. Yes. And then break through into the Godhead. That's correct. Okay, great. So we'll go through those today. But... It seems to make no sense to start going through the path of detachment in these states of consciousness without grounding ourselves in Eckhart's worldview, right. the, the, the core foundation of this path. So perhaps we might just do a little reminder of that. Uh, that'd be a good place to start. And I want to share also that, that those four stages, one of the key sources that have been so helpful for me is Reiner Sherman's book, Wondering, Meister Eckhart, Wondering Joy. And um, they'll be able to see it in the resources. We'll list it there. Because different co- in-depth commentators lay it out a little differently. You know, it's a, okay. it's a certain way to kind of schematize his sermons, which are more um, kind of holographic. That is, each one kind of contains it in a way. So it lays it out in a certain structure where you can see a grace progression. And also, again, to say that I realized, I said at the beginning, that I'm aware this is way too much for one talk. <laughs> but, it, but it allows for closure where you can see the arc. And the listeners on their own, if they're so inclined, can slow it down and go back and so on. So let's start first with his, with his vision, like, like where he starts from. The where he starts from is that uh, if, if, if we try to understand what it means to be real in the fullest possible sense, In the fullest possible sense, to be real means to be oneself, the infinite actuality of reality itself. And if we define being real in that sense, then only God is real. And likewise, by understanding reality in that sense, we, in contrast, are are not real. Mm. We are not real because we are not the infinity of reality itself. The next point, he says, is that then God, in an ongoing self-donating act, gives the infinite presence of God away, Gelasenheit, this this letting go. Uh, God gives the infinite presence away 
in and as the intimate immediacy of the gift and the miracle of our very presence in our nothingness without God, the presence of others and the presence of all things. So it's very paradoxical that in, in one sense we're nothing without God, that if God would cease loving us into the present moment, he says everything would vanish. But precisely because we're nothing without God, our very presence is the presence of God in our nothingness without God. And he's going to start saying that if we start to see reality in this way, we need to understand, accept the fact that we tend not to realize this. Mm -hmm. And therefore, how can we be healed from what hinders us from realizing it, which kind of sets that card off in his past. So that's his poetic beginning of the divine nature of our situation in our nothingness. Yeah. So then we start in the state of dissimilarity. What, what's that state of consciousness for Eckhart? Yes. That, let's say that God and God, like, let there be light, stones and trees. God's pouring itself out as a reality of stones and trees and water, the darkness of the night without God. Then with us as persons created by God in the image and likeness of God, God creates us with a human nature capable of realizing this. And so the glory of human nature isn't just reason and all that comes from reason, literature and science and culture. It's a, the gift of reason. But the deepest gift of our nature, or which he called the powers of the soul, we would say the interiority of our faculties, of the intellect, the memory, and the will, of understanding, remembering, and desiring, and loving, is that these powers are endowed with this capacity to realize this. And furthermore, they're also endowed to begin to realize that God not only is being poured out as a reality of ourselves and our powers, but God is poured out where the ground of God, which is the abyss-like depths of God, has been given to us by God as the abyss-like depths of ourself. So that God's ground and our ground are already one ground. So there's like an infinite unitive mystery hidden down in the depths of our powers. This is our situation. But our situation is that the powers are exiled from the ground. So we tend to, and this is one way of understanding the mystery of uh, fallen human nature, of the original sin, not as a blight on the soul, but rather our capacity to realize that we are God's manifested presence is traumatized. And we tend to think we're nothing but the self things happen to. We're nothing but my ability to understand or not understand, my ability to remember or not remember, my ability to love or not be loved, to find love and lose love. We think that this is all that we are. This is everything. Even though the ground is within us, in this exiled state, we're oblivious to the ground shining out from within into God pouring from without. And we don't see that. And because we think we are nothing but our powers of our temporal self through time, we cling to this experience of ourself, which is the fear of death, the fear of growing old, the fear of loss, and so on. We don't realize that anything we're even capable of attaining or losing is infinitely less than what alone fulfills us, which is given to us as the, as the plenitude of the ground. And that clinging then further closes off access to the ground, which is suffering. Mm. So he's saying, what is the path what is the path to be liberated from this clinging, which is going to be his path of detachment, which leads to similarity. 
And this, this clinging state, dissimilarity, that's the image of the image in the mirror, a full-length image of the mirror that can think and walk, and it thinks it can be real without you. It's gonna launch out on its own. And uh, you try to explain to the image of you, it won't go well without you because it's an image of you. And uh, he said, this is what it's like with God. There's this perception. We're substantially real all on our own, and we're nothing but that. And so he's saying, how are we liberated from that delusion mm -hmm. like that? And is it true, Jim, that in this state of dissimilarity, there's something that arises that gives us the desire to go on a path of detachment or to look to look for a path to find this, yeah. Yes, because Eckhart, is, he's a, a preacher. You know, he's mm -hmm. preaching the Word of God. These are sermons. And so he begins by saying that through faith, we know that God illumines the powers and transforms the powers. And so uh, it's through faith then in the Christian dispensation of grace through Christ. We know that our understanding is transformed by God in intimate realization that we're intimately understood, which is freedom from the need to understand. And we are who God understands us to be in God. And we turn towards that. And our memory, uh, our remembering self and all that we remember or don't remember, we realize through God that God will never forget us. Will a mother ever forget the child of her womb? And so everything is eternal because every moment of life is eternal in God. And we trust in the eternality of our passage through time. And in our desire, we know that our desire is an echo of God's desire for us that God has this infinite love that loves us so, that God has given us God's very ground as our own ground. And so at this point, we're aware of the ground, but we kind of know it through faith. So we don't experience it yet, but this is the state where grace transforms the powers, discipleship, the life of devotional sincerity. And as we follow that path day by day, walking the walk, we're transformed from within, by this uh, path of detachment, which is how the path starts. And Jim, is it true to say that the, the faculties are initially transformed in this relationship with Jesus, like recognizing Jesus as the one giving us our understanding of ourselves, uh, to know who we are, those. That's exactly yeah. right. So when to Jesus, desire what Jesus desires. Yes, like so when Jesus says, fear not, I'm with you always. Through the power of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts, mm -hmm. we're empowered to know that God loves us always, and therefore fear has no foundations. The, even in the midst of our fears, there's, there's freedom from the tyranny of fear through this faith in Christ. It's like that. So this, this is this path of discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus says, follow me, follow me into the bosom of God, follow me, so on, that we then follow Jesus by freeing ourselves from what hinders us from fully living in this Christ consciousness through a path of detachment. So the path then is not one of attaining anything because in the ground nothing's missing. So we're really trying to recognize and liberate ourselves from what hinders us from realizing that nothing is missing. And then Eckhart gives practical examples of that. So if we live this path of detachment, uh, we might move from this state of dissimilarity into what Eckhart calls similarity. 
So I think you called this the first fruit of detachment. That's right. So let's say he gives practical examples. I'll just give one again, Reiner. He said that when we're involved in a project, which unfolds in time, attachment is being attached to the outcome of the project. Am I going to finish it on time? Will it turn out as good as I hope it will? And so on. And so we're not free from it. So what we're to do, he says, to practice detachment is to do our best that it would turn out well. But grounded in a peace is not dependent whether it turns out well or not. Because our peace is dependent on this being infinitely loved by God in the depths of our self beyond understanding. And the project, as it turns out, doesn't have the power to name who we are. But when we're cut off from the ground, when we're cut off from God, it does. Mm -hmm. Because if it's criticized or we fall short, we feel shame, we feel regret. If it goes even better than we thought, we walk around kind of uh, we're more amazing than we thought we were. And I <laughs> hope people can realize that and, and so on. So he said that happens in relationships. All these examples in life, they're real. We experience them. But we catch ourselves absolutizing the relative. It's contingent. It's ephemeral. But we give, it, we give identity and we cling to fear and react. So every time we notice that we're to take a deep breath, it's relatively real, but deep breath, that it's this infinite generosity of God is present with me in the midst of the relationship, in the midst of the project, in the midst of whatever. And we cultivate that internet, which is really Christ consciousness. As that ripens, like maturing in discipleship, then we move from dissimilarity to a state of similarity. And the similarity, is it a similarity to the qualities of God or the, or the ways we experience God? Yes. So we would say then, uh, he's going to use the example of the just person, the person who's just. So God's the infinity of justice. God's the infinity of mercy. God's the infinity of humility. God's the infinity of love. God's the infinity of beauty. So the more then we turn towards something greater than ourselves, say justice, we're moved towards justice, and we give ourselves over to justice. The more we give ourselves over to justice, he says about the just person, we use Dr. Martin Luther King as an example, that we have no life of our own. And the thing about this state of similarity, it can be broken. That is because if we turn away from justice, it becomes merely legal. And we turn away a lot, actually. We're just human beings. And we keep turning back again, turning back again, turning back again to become more and more habituated. So that's why I use the phrase, to find that act, to find that person, to find that community, which when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupation with your self-absorbed self and brings you home to yourself. That you don't live on your terms. You live on these divine terms, embodied in a classroom full of students or in a patient in a hospital or helping somebody at the store find the product that they're looking for or uh, uh, helping your child read a good night story or accepting your aloneness. So uh, every aspect of life has this possibility of like this great letting go of absolutizing contingency. And what's shining forth then is this similarity with God, to be with God always, who's with us in all things. These aspects you outline, justice, mercy, 
humility, love, beauty, are they all aspects of love? Is that one way we could look at it? You could say that, yes. You could say that, that love is the effulgence or the fullness of justice. Love is the fullness of mercy. Love is the fullness of beauty. Is Because God is love. Yes. God yeah. is love. And we're created by love in the image and likeness of love. And and so it finds us kind of as a as a calling in our situation, in, mm -hmm. a, in the relationship or a ministry or a task or a fidelity to something. And uh, we're transformed in our fidelity to that and ever deeper realizations of God's fidelity to us concretized in that path. So the act is, is something where we might feel this sense of love th flowing through us, some, yes. something coming from beyond us. And do, do you think it has a sacrificial feeling at first? It does, it, it, because what it is, in the Merton talk sessions, I said, Merton once said, we should all get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. God doesn't let us get away with it. He said, you can't love and live on your own terms. Mm. And see, this sort of detachment comes in. My fidelity to the spouse, to the child, to my own solitude, to the earth, to poetry, to art, to the acceptance of growing older or dealing with a long illness meets with resistance. It meets with resistance because we keep trying to pull it back to deal with it on our terms. So he says we have to be very released. See, we have to keep giving over ourselves to this generosity, mm. which is infinitely richer that what we're capable to experience when we're clinging to something. I see. If we just yeah. let go with the plenitude of the flow, more and more we become acclimated to the generosity, and little by little we're, we're liberated or freed up by grace mm -hmm. to uh, live on God's terms, concretized in what the present moment is asking out of us. Because in our innermost being we are this flow of love. Exactly. And so the detachment is... It's kind of surrender and letting go into what we actually already are in our being. Yeah, it's almost like a, another way of saying it is that there's attachment in this negative sense, this hindrance. Yeah. But there's also a kind of an attachment like we're bonded to fidelity, to infinite love's fidelity to us. The word monk, the etymology of the word monk is one, to will one thing. Is the will of God revealed to me and what my awakening heart feels I'm being called to be faithful to. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, there's a kind of a quiet seal to it, like a quiet commitment to that. You talked about the act that we engage in having an energy of its own. You could kind of come upon this experience of it, having an energy of its own and it, that it grants destiny to you. Uh, the, the quote that I gave from Reiner Sherman, he says, you know, he say, it so happened or it came to pass. And so we were going along, minding our own business. We turned a corner and we met someone and we didn't realize it, but our life was about to be changed. Or we decided on a certain career. You know, I think I'll teach kindergarten students. This, I can make a living. I can, but then you realize you're being taken over by your love for all these children. Mm. It so happened, it came to pass that I was inclined to lean in this direction. Mm -hmm. And unforeseeably, see, it grants destiny. To, and what this starts to suggest is that God's presence 
is the infinity of the concretizations of the unforeseeability of life itself. See? Because see, who, who's guiding this? Yeah. See? Who's guiding this? And so this is a sense of abandonment to divine providence, Dekosad's book, this, which is the mind of, I came to do the will of the one who sent me. So we learn to trust the unfolding flow of things. So the transformations, I love Dag Hangerschultz saying, for all that has been, thank you for all that will be, yes. Mm, for all that I... has been has brought me right up to this very moment where I'm even able to care about such things. And I don't know what the future holds, but I know if my heart is open, it'll be more of the same. See? Because you're not done with me yet. That's the feel of it, I think. You said that the we remain in this state of similarity while we can turn away from the act and, and and we lose kind of that sense of being in that divine flow of love. And so as we're engaging the, in the act, does it just, it's bestowed on us that we, we come into a state of identity? Yes, what he says is that, he says there's no similarity in God. The persons of the Trinity aren't like one another. You can't count the persons of the Trinity. They're divine relations of knowledge and love and transsubjective oneness, like identity. And we're called to that. By the way, to back up on similarity for a minute, is that another thing, part of the path, I think also, is that every time we slip and fall and have to renew our commitment, we're tempted to be disheartened about ourselves. But what we discover, the whole message of Jesus is the love, when the, this infinite love touches brokenness, it turns broken, the encounter with brokenness into mercy. And so we place our faith not in our ability to be faithful to what we're called to be. Our faith is God being infinitely in love with us and our inability of living up to what we're called to be. So even the slippage is grace. See, even the slippage, but it takes time. We don't see it yet in similarity. You know, we're still leaning into it and I'm going to try harder and so on. But as that process ripens, we realize that we, we need to go beyond similarity, being drawn by God into this identity, into a state of identity. And that's where he uses the example of listening to music. Do you think, Jim, in that slippage, if we're on this path, that it's just another opportunity to practice detachment? It is. As a matter of fact, you know, in the depth dimension of psychotherapy, a person comes in with what hurts, like psychological symptoms that embody suffering. And when you start to look at it, like in a safe, vulnerable, safe way, and start laying back the layers, you discover that an aspect of yourself that causes suffering is actually a survival strategy formed in trauma and abandonment. And one learns to be more insightful, more reality-based, more compassionate, more accepting. And one kind of integrates and moves through these things. And so that's kind of the feel of all of this. We become more and more inclusive in our understanding. As like Jesus, although we slip away many times, um, God never slips away from us and is infinitely one with us in the slippage. And so mercy is really, it actually deepens our dependency on God and our gratitude to God. Identity is what we long for. Yes. Moving beyond this similarity to identity. And you said that the mystic says, look what love has done to me. So, so this has done unto us, this movement from similarity to identity. 
Yes, that, that we're on a path not of our own making. I mean, it is our making because we have to make choices. Yeah. But the choices is a kind of obediential fidelity to an infinite choice God has made to give God to us as our very life. See? So we've all been judged, but we've all been judged by mercy. So we're on a path not of our own making because we're always surrendering to this oneness which is already achieved it's secretly within us in the ground. We're drawn like a gravitational pull see, toward this oneness. And so oneness then is a state of consciousness. It, be, it first dawns on us as an event. So for example, listening to music, where the soloist is pouring the beauty, is flowing through the soloist. A, a soloist is surrendered to it. So when you listening become so surrendered, like you just give yourself over to the beauty, it's no longer true that the soloist is on one side giving it, you're on the other side receiving. There's only the event of the music that enraptures us. Next, it starts dawning on you that it's always like that. There's a certain point. It is true that God's on one side creating us moment by moment by moment by moment, heartbeat by heartbeat. And it's also true if God would cease that, we'd vanish. But it's also true because of the generosity of God. It's no longer true that God's a creator on one side and we're the created on the other side. This identity that enraptures us. And for Merton, see, then that's the point verge. That's, that's the oneness that God is being poured out as the act that God is. And we're receiving that as the act that we are. So that's so why I say our next inhalation is not an option. You know, the day doesn't go well without it. And so we are the act of receiving the generosity, and God's the act of giving. And so there's a point, there's a point of meeting. But here, the ground is understood as a verb. See, it's understood as a process. And then we can see that that can be cultivated in fidelity to a meditation practice. We can sit and refine our awareness of the, the breath is that, the unfolding of time is that, and little by little, that can become habituated. So, and the idea here, I think, the distinction here with identity is that it, it becomes unbroken, that the breaking doesn't break it. So for Teresa of Avila, but when we turn the interior castle, she says in spiritual betrothal in the sixth mansion, there's, there's God's burn, the flame of God's candle, and then there's our flame. And uh, when the two flames touch, they become one flame. So under optimal conditions and deep meditation, we experience the oneness. But when the cell phone goes off, it breaks. See? But then she says, but in the seventh mansion, it's not like that. And she uses the example of crossing a river after a raging rainstorm. And the river is swollen and, and it's a little horse-drawn cart. And as the horse pulls the cart off the other side of the river, the cart tips over and she falls in the mud on her hands and knees. Mm -hmm. And she's, Lord, why are you letting this happen? He said, Teresa, this is the way I treat my friends. She says, no wonder you have so few. So even the God's the infinity of the breaking points. See, God's the infinity of the laws. And I think a metaphor for this is the stages of dying when someone comes to acceptance. See, it's freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. See. It's, it's, it's freedom from the haphazardness of life in the midst of the haphazardness, that the grace is ribbon through all of it in some unbreakable way, some habituated, subtle state. So would it be the case then in this state of identity 
where we described in similarity we can turn away from love or justice or compassion. Um, in the state of identity, we stay connected, but it doesn't mean we won't slip in kind of our finite way of behaving or so we might slip, but in the slippage, we still stay connected. Is is that a way of looking at it? Yes, that's good. I'd put it this way. I do think there's growth in virtue. Mm-hmm. And so as we mature in this, we slip less. Yeah, yeah. But um, we, we still slip. The difference lies in how we understand the slip. Mm-hmm. Insofar as we attribute the slip as having the authority to lessen God's infinite oneness with us, we're still in attachment to conditioned states. Insofar as the slip, the quote I gave in an earlier session, when they asked St. Benedict in the fifth century, founded monasticism, monastic life in the West, you know, what do you monks do in the monastery all day? He says, fall down and get up, fall down and get up, fall down and get up. And so in the falling, we're caught in the free fall by God's mercy. So even the, the broken places are lessons in liberation, lessons of this unwavering plenitude of love that permeates our wavering ways. And it becomes, it, it doesn't mean we still don't try to improve on that because it hurts yes. people, hurts us, like everybody. But it does mean it's infused or permeated by this bountiful generosity that includes the brokenness itself. What comes to mind is Mother Teresa because we now know that she, although she on the outside and and in her acts looked generous and loving and merciful, internally she wasn't experiencing God's presence in that way. She didn't, that's right. So in a way she's like the patron saint of the dark night of the soul. Mm. And the thing is she was at peace in it because she was surrendered over to God's will, which freed her up to channel this love that she couldn't feel. And sometimes it's that way with us, too. I, I think sometimes we're powerless to feel it. But the, the powerlessness, there's a kind of a providential powerlessness to feel. By your fruit you shall know them. And you can tell that God's purposes are being achieved through you in your poverty, see? by your, the way you're present to people or to the earth or to time. And so it has all these very personal ramifications and forms it can take. And that would be identity. She's yes, in a state exactly. of identity. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. And it's, and it's heading toward the ground. Yeah. So, and we're getting closer now to the getting ground. Yeah. So this idea of being surrendered, so surrendered, so accepting, so yielding, Eckhart says this can happen in the foundations of a family or of a community in a dialogue that actualizes two words of existence, that, that it can happen in really simple things, this unfolding into identity. Yeah, it's, it's how I put it. It's an intimate realization of the incomprehensible stature of simple things. Mm-hmm. Like uh, an intimate realization of the divinity of standing up and sitting down, of laughing and crying, of waking up and falling asleep. There's an underlying habituated sense of the divinity that's the effulgence or the fullness of the details of the day. And so we're back again, like it so happened, it came to pass unforeseeably. And then an example he uses too, if you're listening to a teacher, say like Eckhart, listening to, I can remember sitting with Merton listening to him or possibly, like you don't get it at first. 
like you get little pieces and you start connecting the dots and all of a sudden the gestalt clicks. I get it. See, I, Lornigan would say insight. There's a moment of insight. And likewise, in relationships, you can be in a relationship with somebody and you can tell they're coming to the point they get you. There's still ways that they don't get you yet because you don't get yourself yet. You're on a path, but they get you. And when you can return the favor through, through love and the daily rhythms of the day, when two people realize they get each other, they see each other, you would say God's the infinity of that. See? Mm -hmm. And so there's like a single word that gathers up the essence of everything that you're saying. So when Eckhart says the I, E-Y-E, -E, the I with which I see God is the I which God sees me. If you sit with Eckhart, it clicks. And yeah. you realize that these succinct aphorisms are embodiments that are echoed through everything that he says. Yes. Yeah. It's just like that example he gives of the music because there's, there's a moment with a piece of music that we love. I like the idea of the music as an example because it's not just the ears that become one with the music. Like you have to let it influence your whole being. Like it, it kind of overtakes you. That's exactly right. And then you can also then see as you then, as it crystallizes that way, Yo-Yo Ma in his uh, interview with Krista Tippett on being, he said when he's playing the cello, he's always very aware that he's not there to prove something. He's there to share something. Mm. And so everything we have, we've been given, and we've been given it to give it. See? And then you realize as you listen to the symphony, then every movement of the symphony is an embodiment of this crystallization because it holds together. Like life is like a song. You know what I mean? It's like the symphonic nature of our life. Yeah, that's what's coming through. And the conversation or the music can be coming from someone who's no longer living. Exactly. Uh, Gabriel Marcel, he writes, not only was a great philosopher, but he was also a playwright and a musician and composer. And he was very close to his mother and she died when he was young. And he says, it's amazing how present a dead person can be. Uh, that's the deathless nature of the beloved, like shining through the ongoing unfoldings of your day. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. This feeling of destiny that, that you talked about, so we find the act that brings us into this harmonic kind of flow and uh, of love and 
we get this feeling of destiny. Is that because we're destined for love? I would say two things. One, I want to start first with the patterns of love, mm. like the configurations of love. And so I could, I'll say this about myself, but I'm sure it's like with you or Corey or any of the listeners. When I look at where I'm at right now, like where I'm at within myself and talking like this with you, mm -hmm. and I look back at my origins, being born in Akron, Ohio, and when I look back at the winding path of my life, I couldn't have planned it if I tried. Mm. See, I couldn't have planned it if I tried. See, and I think that's a destiny. I see. It's not by accident that I can sit here like this. See, it's the unfolding of destiny. So we're, we're in the midst of the unfolding realization of the providential nature of destiny. See? And there may be a lot within us still that's unresolved. Mm -hmm. But we know that as we sit with the unresolved, that too is destiny. Because as we keep leaning into it and waiting and staying open, T.S. Eliot says, to hope too soon would be to hope for the wrong thing. You know? And it's like to think too soon would be to think the wrong thing. It's like we're not yet ready for hope. See? But we ripen and mature like we're sifted like wheat. And uh, we're transformed that way. And this is what Eckhart's all about because he was living this in the world. See, he was living this in the unfoldings of the day. And uh, like Jesus lived. And we certainly don't start off surrendered and yielding and accepting and all those things. So that's part of the unfolding, the destiny, if we get to a place where we can look back like this. I think this, that in infancy, we're the embodiment of this trust. Mm -hmm. Embodiment of this trust, because it's the love bond. And if all parents were infinitely loving and generous and kind, we would internalize the love glow from the parent. But the parents impose on us the unfinished business of their life. You look into your parents' eyes and no one looks back. The very one you depend on to keep you safe is the one who's hurting you. And also, by the way, this paradox is woven into birth itself because being born is not a picnic. Do you know what, I mean? <laughs> what I'm saying? It's, and the very first thing they do to you when you get out there, they hold you up and give you a smack. Like, yes. welcome to life on this earth. So right from the beginning, there's this, the transparency of the infant's trust. And then the very ways it deepens, but also the ways we've internalized traumatizations and hurt. And so we're, the, the, this path toward identity and toward the ground is we're being healed from the, the, the ability of those circumstantial unfoldings to have the authority to name who we ultimately are and are called to be in the midst of unfoldings. Mm-hmm. That makes and that's sense. just a part of our destiny. It is. It is our path. Built the, into our reality. Yes. And that's why I think the mystery of Christ rose from his wounds. It's the eternality of the wounds in glorified by love. And so the, there's a certain holiness to the story. Uh, not to romanticize the trauma or the tragic, because there's nothing just to violate it, really. The, the tragic really is tragic. Yeah. But the point is, it's not just tragic, because nothing is just anything except an unfolding of a love that hasn't yet completely shined through it yet. But when we pass through the veil of death, it will forever. And now through detachment, it can start to shine through it now. You can be at inner peace in the unresolved matters of your life. So Eckhart identifies Mary as someone who lived, I think the words were in immovable detachment. So, and she went through birth and 
life and death and resurrection. And, yes, you do. And I love this idea of this state of immovable detachment. It's a nice image because he says that, uh, you know, the boards of the door swing back and forth. Yes. But the hinge is stationary. So the hinge is this axis of stillness. Yes. But it isn't as if I'm hidden in the axis of stillness, but if I do anything, it'll break the stillness. It has to be that the stillness permeates the action itself. I see. Like Richard Rohr, action and contemplation. The action doesn't disrupt the contemplation. The contemplation is the depth-like nature of our actions. And uh, that's a mystery of Christ, too. Uh, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. So we're trying to find this axis of uh, this deepening identity and see how the deepening identity is ribbon through the fluctuating patterns of gain and loss and birth and death and sorrow and joy and, you know, life. You know. Mary's like the archetypal she is. hinge on the door, so to speak, <laughs> with, the, with a life that yeah. included the birth and the death and the loss and the... She's like an archetype of us. Even the angel, mm -hmm. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. He's looked on the Magnificat. He's looked on his servant in her nothingness. Henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. See, see the Mater Dei, the mother of God, is giving birth to... And we, Eckhart is saying, we give birth to Christ mm -hmm. out of this yes. identity. We give birth to Christ back into God's fatherly heart. See, we both give birth to the word, to the activities of life itself. Last thing on identity, you talked about, and Eckhart points to this uh, way we begin to see everything as equal. So Eckhart says, I'm trying to talk about the person who encounters the same. What a great statement. It is. So see, we're, as we move closer and closer to the ground now, this is where, first of all, it's, it's equal in identity. Is because everything are infinite variations of this incarnate infinity intimately realized. Mm -hmm. It's like that. So this would be a good way to segue to the ground. Okay. And I already started this by the quotes which I gave, which is what you just referred to one. So I want to go back over those quotes again, but make them more explicit in the ground. This is kind of the, the movement from a state of consciousness that Meister Eckhart calls identity into a state of consciousness where we break through into the Godhead. That's right, that's right. So I want to go back and let's summarize this like this, make it more explicit, because this is really the end, this is this endless endpoint for Eckhart is the, Eckhart. Is the Godhead. Well, one way to say it is, is that, and this sort of gets very subtle you know, and delicate, because so you have to sit with it and reflect on it and so on, is that, uh, <clears throat> By the Godhead, and this is, I, I refer to it as the abyss-like depths of God. The Godhead is prior to and beyond the Trinity. And really this is the apophatic way of the infinite unknowability or the infinite emptiness of God. Because this is God, because there's no distinctions in the Godhead. Mm -hmm. There is in the Trinity. Distinction and non-distinction, non-distinction. Likewise, in the Godhead, there's no intentionality in the Godhead. There's no divine will in the Godhead. See? It's like an infinite stillness or an infinite void. It's very close to the Buddhist understanding of emptiness as, as paradoxical overflowing fullness. Mm. Like this. So this infinite poverty of God, this infinite emptiness, this impartable desert or this stillness, he says, is poetically, he says, eternally in motion. And this motion he calls a balazio or a boiling where the infinite emptiness is manifested as the Trinity. 
Mm. And the Trinity, uh, infinite relations of knowledge and love and transsubjective communion. So intimacy is the first manifestation of the manifested mystery of God. You said that the the Godhead is prior to and beyond the Trinity. Yes. But then at the same time, it's boiling over. It's boiling as the Trinity. As the tr- so oh, I see. So uh, uh, it manifests. So it, it manifests the Trinity as its first act of exactly. Creation. So the so the the Godhead, which is really the, the ultimate destiny, the ground of the mind. Yeah. Our, our homeland is not the Trinity. Like it gets to a point where the Trinity is not enough for us. See, we're headed toward the Godhead. We're headed toward this infinite nothingness that's pregnant with the Trinity, pregnant with the earth, pregnant. So this infinite emptiness, though, uh, there's no intentionality, but it gives itself as the Trinity. So it's the ground of God, but given as the Trinity. So it's not like there's a Trinity and the ground. It's very subtle. It's, yes. it's, it's like unfolding dimensions of infinite boundarylessness beyond intentionality, beyond, but then manifesting itself in the interdivine life of God as these divine relations, which is this activity of love. And by the way, we referred this earlier with Merton, I think, in the, to understand the persons of the Trinity, is God the Father in the poetry of this, God is mother, God is origin, that God is eternally speaking herself, speaking himself as the Logos or the Word. So God's eternally speaking the infinity of God as the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And because God is infinitely giving the infinity of God away as the Word, it would mean if we would go looking for the Father that is in any way whatsoever other than the Word, we'd never find the Father because there is no Father. Because the Father is infinitely giving, the infinity held nothing back. And likewise, if we'd go looking for the Word that's in any way whatsoever other than the Father, we'd look and look and look. There is no Word. Because God is the infinity of the infinite generosity of God. And they're, they're oneness, they contemplate each other. And the Holy Spirit is the love that arises from that oneness. So if we look for the Holy Spirit, there is no Holy Spirit other than that. And that's the transsubjective communion. Mm-hmm. Distinction and non-distinction. That's right. And so when Eckhart creates us, we participate in that. When God creates us? Yeah, before God creates us. From all eternity, see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing has been made. So through all eternity, see, stones and trees and stars, when God created water, God didn't have to think up what water might be. Through all eternity, God is contemplating water in the Word. Since everything in God is God, it's the divinity of water. So when God says, let there be water, the water flows along. And so in ego consciousness, we don't see this. We just take a drink of water or wash our hands. But if we sit at the edge of the ocean, or like uh, uh, Carl Jung, how can we claim the years have taught us anything if we haven't learned to listen to the secret that whispers in the brooks? We get intimations of the divinity of water. When we gaze into the flames, when we listen to silence like this. And likewise, when God created you, uh, God didn't have to think up who you might be through all eternity. See, God eternally contemplated you in the word as a word. So Eckhart says, the amazing thing about a word is that when it goes out, it doesn't cease to be what it is before it went out. So when I share with you what I might know about Meister Eckhart, 
it doesn't, I, my knowledge of Eckhart doesn't cease to be because I shared it with you. Likewise, although we're being manifested by God now in this moment, we're still infinitely who we were before God created the universe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's coming back full circle to complete itself back to our homeland. And that's the idea of the way we're the same, is that, that origin and our destiny. That's exactly right. Everything's caught up in this flowing circularity of this generosity. It, mm -hmm. it carries us along with itself. And we, we learn to yield to it, go with the flow and share it. And, and so Eckhart says then, as this ripens, this oneness, he said then it includes the world because all things were made through him. It's the divinity of water and stones and trees and stars and the, the smell of cinnamon and, I mean, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you realize that it's like a dance with God, ourselves, and all of creation holding hands in a dance of infinite equality given by God. Mm. And you're so amazed. See? Like it came to this, like, jeez, like this. <laughs> And then, see, where the, where the Godhead starts, you say, what could possibly be the origin mm. of such wonderment? And now you begin to think of the origin from whence does this miraculous unfolding arise? And not arise in the beginning, but it's an eternal arising, giving us the eternal origin, the beginningless beginning. How can I now trace my way back to the origin? And this is where he starts moving into the Godhead. Wow. Uh, there was a statement you made at the outset of detachment. We did not expect this much. That's right. It's beautiful. Yeah. Because in the Godhead, when you look at this, it's like the rains fall from our hands. Mm -hmm. The rains fall from our hands as we become one with the Godhead, this realization of this eternal perpetual origin. And this is why uh, he says, in the one who's come to this realization goes back to the blacksmith shop or some other trade knowing that eagerness, even mystical, makes one forgetful. See, because eagerness is a symptom that everything isn't already infinitely present. I There's nothing see. to be eager for because nothing's missing. So you go back to the divinity, the ordinariness of the unfolding of things, you know, uh, intimately realized in your heart. This idea of living without a why was something new to me. It's, uh, tell us more about that. The insight is that when I was studying philosophy, medieval philosophy, somebody would done Scotus and Aquinas, to this very similar to with, with Eckhart, is that in a way then, Eckhart sees, the love of creation is greater than the love of redemption. Because the love of redemption had a reason, redemption. Because there's no intentionality in the Godhead. See? So there's no reason for creation. It's the anarchy of the ineffable. It's an infinite anarchy. He says, why does a horse run all of its might across the field? It runs without a why. Why does a rose bloom? It blooms without a why. We should learn to live without a why. Because the why is trying to find our footing in circumstance. Because a why would be a finite why. Like, I think I'll write that down. I got a reference point. But what if there's no reference points? What if everything is the infinite generosity in the concreteness of everything? Mm. as an intimate state. Oh, we also gave the quote then where he says, you're sitting still. You're sitting in this stillness. Since the, God's ground is my ground and my ground is God's ground, so the infinite eternal stillness of the Godhead 
is now the infinite stillness of me, not in principle or poetically, but experientially. So by the stillness within myself, the sun is moving across the sky. Mm. By the stillness within myself, the rivers throughout the world are flowing. Oh, to the wow. stillness within myself, because I'm not undistinguished from, but but like Mary, like the swinging door, it swings out into the flowing rivers, into the passage of time, into, and this is where Eckhart's trying to bring us to. So it's like every experience of reality. It's not just even our own life experience. Exactly. That's why Thomas Burton says, as long as you're still there to have an experience of God, you can't have one. And no longer. And notice too, in deep moments of love or deep moments of surrender to beauty, we're not there in reflective consciousness. And yet in hindsight, it's the fullness of being there. What's subtle about this for me is that we, we come upon this desire, you know, this desire uh, to follow a path like this, this desire for this homecoming. And it feels sometimes like the desire is looking for a why. Like, why am I here? But where we end is living without a why. Yeah, that's a very nice point. I want to raise a question. Martin Heidegger uh, reflects on this. There's this lovely passage in Heidegger, and it's the front piece of a Reiner Sherman's book, on uh, at least my edition, the original edition, Meister Eckhart. I don't know if it's in Wandering Joy. It's so Eckhartian, and Eckhart had a deep respect for Eckhart. Uh, Martin Heidegger, the philosopher, Heidegger. Yes, yeah. He says, what seems easier than to let a being be just the being that it is? Or does this turn out to be the most difficult of tasks, particularly if such a project to let a being be as it is represents the opposite of the indifference that simply turns its back upon the being itself? We must turn towards the being, think about it in regard to its being, but by such a thinking at the same time, let it rest in its own way to be. Ever notice when you're with someone that will love you under the condition you measure up to what they want you to be? But when they just accept you where you are, it sets you free to change. So Eckhart, Martin Heidegger has a lovely little book called Introduction to Metaphysics. And he starts out by saying, Dan Walsh's translation, see, why is there something rather than nothing? Like, why the universe? Why? He said, this question, Heidegger said, grazes our heart in life's most fundamental moments, in birth, in love, in loss, in death. Why is there anything at all? And you go wandering off across the property, leaning up against trees. Why is there anything? Yeah, this is philosophy. Mm -hmm. And Dan Walsh says the real question is, why is there someone rather than no one? And I'm that someone. Because of the anarchy of the infinite generosity of God as my life. And so the Godhead has these kinds of rich uh, poetic intimations and it like they allude to it and i think we've all had intimations of these experiences mm -hmm. but as the path deepens they become more habituated see and to be lived and shared day by day which is eckhart's path it's interesting that when you come back you come back to your work you know you come back to this where we started with similarity finding that act and entering into it or the the acts that you are to perform to do them in in this way in a loving way because you could think that without a why like why 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 would i bother with anything that's but it's that's where i'll just sit here and die i mean I, exactly <laughs> but it's 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 not the kind of why that we look for in our in our egoic consciousness it's a it's a different kind of 
a quality. Yeah, I would say two things. One, we start somewhere, and we have we start with a why. Mm -hmm. So we get a taste of something. And why is this elusive to me? What could I, and though we pass beyond the why, but we start somewhere. And the other, the other side of it is what you're referring to. You know, in the rule of St. Benedict, ora et labora, to pray and to work. So the daily labor of the monk, maintaining the, the monastery, the growing the farm, whatever, isn't a rude interruption to mystical union. See, the labor itself embodies mystical union because when you're really given over to the work, notice there's always an unfinished, messy piece of it, which is the concreteness of God. Uh, being a human being, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the part to come back to to the concreteness of our own life. So, what's interesting about this path is whether you've had the experience of the Godhead or not. That the way we live live it out, the path of detachment, it's the same way at every stage. This desire to surrender, yield, accept. It's true. Yeah, beautiful. Last question. The Godhead, is that our destiny, that when, when we, we die, we'll return completely to the Godhead? Yes. Let's say this, that what we're saying is that when, the moment, when we pass through the veil of death, mm -hmm. we'll pass into the eternality of this oneness with the Godhead, which is our death, because it's already been given to us, but then it'll be given to us in the full light of glory, which will also embrace and include the, the eternality of the fleetingness of all that we were. Our, our stories will still be there, we'll still be there, but transcended and permeated by the Godhead. Mm. What Eckhart is saying is that journey toward that Godhead that will live in awe and glory. I, I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, that wherever I am, you might also be. The Father, that they may be one even as we are one. See? Is it, it can start here, and that's Eckhart's path. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, all these mystics, each one has his or her own unique way of this exactly the same thing. That is not, we don't necessarily have to wait until we're dead to realize this unmediated infinity of every breath and moment under the condition that we're willing to die to anything less than the infinite love of God as the sole source of our security and identity. And also to die to try to actually figure out how to do that because we can get attached to that. Yes. The ego is always uh, hooked on to something that thinks it has to do first so this can happen. Yes. But it's possible to know that everything's already unexplainably happening. And through prayer and sincerity and love and life, one can more and more. And I think that's why we turn to the mystics for guidance. And the, the very fact we're drawn to listen to talk like this shows us we're already on that path. where we wouldn't be drawn to listen to talk like this. So I'm feeling a little dizzy and overwhelmed. Do you think I'm on the path? Jim? I do. <laughs> I, I actually do, actually, to be dizzy and overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just in the midst of a beautiful symphony that's yeah, yeah. Taking, taking me over. I, like I put it sometimes with myself. Back in the good old days when I was holy, it was so clear. <laughs> but for quite some time now, I've become perplexed. See, But perplexed is humility. And humility is the door through which this comes to us. I think it becomes more, more and more intimately unexplainable in all directions. That's why I love that little quote. It says, uh, the fact when Eckhart preached, the fact his clothing was full of holes suggests to us the fire that consumed him. See? That conflict turns to paradox and at last invites silence. See? 
Mm. Everything, there's nothing to say, you know, it's just, everything's unexplainably self-evident. When we were getting ready today, uh, Corey was talking about the Marvel Universe and, and how now they're going into these alternate realities to bring back superheroes. And Anyway, I think if you wanted a second career, you could write <laughs> scripts. For... <laughs> I thought of that, actually, writing a mystical comic book. Oh, yeah. And by the way, this is Joseph Campbell's point, too. The power of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings is more explicit in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. is that it's veiled, oblique innuendos of this very thing that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Meaning, like mythic dimensions of meaning through the power of stories and meaning is. I don't know if you can remember, there was a prayer you cited earlier, and I was hoping we could end on it, but I didn't write it all down. It start, started with, um, for all that... Oh, yes, I have it. I know it by heart. Uh, Dag Hammarskjöld was head of the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So he's like a mystic, a political leader, contemplatively, like the leadership of the Tao. And his little prayer was in his book, Markings, which is like his journal. For all that has been, thank you. For all that will be, yes. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Jim. You're very welcome. Thanks for uh, the dialogue. I think it really helped bring this out. I think it'll help the listeners. Oh, good. I hope so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.